Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with uh, co-host and special guest, Victor Kinzer. And we are here today to talk about future fates, options for how to set up your chronicle. Victor, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I just got through rereading all the future fates for this episode, and they are fascinating. Uh-huh. It's <laughs> M20 just has so much in it. It's like people who read the New Testament over and over again, and on the 60th read of John, you still find something weird out of it. You're like, ah, oh, son of a gun. Can cotton candy is a canon source of quintessence. Who knew? <laughs> like, I, I remember there's a throwaway line in M20 that's like, oh, yeah, quintessence can be used to make fire. Fire can also make quintessence. You know, look it up. On the uh, on the scale chart, I'm like, wait, what? I <laughs> I could be an arsenomancer and like refuel qu quintessence nukes by burning down a block. A, a block. I'm like, okay, thanks, M20. But uh, yeah, Victor, what is a future fate? The future fates are basically the point where the writers threw their hands up in the air and went, Metaplot is a bad idea for this game. Let's not try Metaplot. They date back to Sorcerer's Crusade. That was the first time they were used. And I remember seeing an interview. It, may, it was either an interview with Seder or just a reference to an interview with Seder where basically the idea was Mage is all about having the ability to manipulate and direct reality. That's the whole central theme of Mage. And we want to do this time period piece in the past. We can't have all the current canon as set in stone or it just sucks all the life out of so to get around that, they did future fates. But in general, it was things like, how did the Ascension War develop? Did the Nefandi ever actually infiltrate anything? Maybe the Order of Reason didn't fall to unreasonable corruption. And the idea being, this is your game. We invite you to be creative and not feel bound by all this canon when you're in this setting. Have fun, be a mage, change the world. And so that was their, their route. And then M20 came around, and the 20th lines were all supposed to be metaplot agnostic. But Mage, especially in Revised, had a very like fixed metaplot that fans were very divided on. A lot of the old first and second edition Mage fans did not like the direction Revised took. But Revised pulled in a bunch of new players. Mage has this really interesting fan base that is huge, partially because we got two full rounds of player recruitment which even Vampire didn't get. Like, Vampire was sort of an ongoing, slow, organic growth thing. Mage had these two big bursts. And M20 was always meant to bring all that together. And so they brought back the future fates, thinking, okay, we need all these different decisions and invite people to decide what's true at our particular table, but still list all the canon and have one edition for everyone. So it sort of shifted from... You don't have to be bound by this. You're in the past. You get to change the world to which fan are you? We're going to give options <laughs> for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the crux. It's like quantum uncertainty for Metaplot. And I feel like Revised was really two editions. I really feel like the Heining yeah. era and the Bridges era need to be two separate one where Heining is like, we have never provided a version of Mage that is deep and introspective and intensely personal and given a full toolbox for it. It was always there, but we never cleared enough plot space for it. And I'm going to do that. And then Bill Bridges is like, hey, wait, why can't we go to the Umber anymore? The Umber's awesome. Let's just make it, I don't know, deadlier. 
Um, and then we got the second half of Revise. Also, there's a Sphinx who's shouting messages, and the technocracy got its shit together. Also, there may be this weird thing across the umbra that's trying to eat everyone. We should look into that asteroid at some point. I'm Bill Bridges, and I break things. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks, Uncle Bill. And <laughs> oh, it's so funny hearing you describe it that way, because I was one of those first second edition players where I opened up Revise, and I read that intro that went, the tradition's lost. And I went, cool, I own second edition. I put it back on the shelf, and I didn't pay attention. I didn't read the rest of the book well, when it came out. I'll be honest, that intro, I was done. And then, long after it had gone out of publication, I ended up getting a bunch of books as part of, like, eBay batch purchases. Is the only reason I would have bought them. And I opened them up, and I looked through them. I ran into the Sphinx and the Rogue Council, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun. Hearing you describe it that way, though, you're not wrong. And most of that plot, unless you like are telling that story almost adventure style, doesn't really apply to most tables. It was a wacky time. It was a wacky time. It was an adventure. Uh, the degree to which Malcolm Shepard and Bill Bridges are like, we're going to make things happen. And each of them had the writing acumen to be like, yeah, this disagrees with the previous stuff. Here's my list of retcons. And you're like, oh, you have done this before. <laughs> like just the, the sheer amount of metaplot that occurs in the Euthanatos revised book where it's like, oh yeah, these two places were destroyed. There's this new way through the uh, the Avatar storm. There's something called Ravana's navel that you can slip through if you want to. Also the ghosts of the Avatar like, are forming this other thing. Someone should really look into that. And you're just, it just left me clamoring because the first book I got from Revise without realizing it was Infinite Tapestry. And I had never read Book of Worlds at that point. And it's just like, everything's broken. I'm like, I didn't know what it was like before it was broken. So a future fate within M20, there are a total of 17 of them, depending on how you count them. And we are not going to cover all of them. They are listed. If you like the idea of future fates a lot, I did an entire book on this topic called Ascension's Landscape that in defiance of God's will made Electrum. I think it is the only storyteller handbook handbook to have reached Electrum on DriveThruRPG. So if you like this conversation, there's even more of it there. I will include a link in the show notes. In M20, they basically say, here is a thing that happened. Here are generally three ways to take it. One is, it happened. One is, it didn't happen. One is, it kind of happened. It doesn't give a huge amount of detail on how to run with those. And if I were to have a criticism of that in M20, it would be, they were strangely organized and we didn't have enough to run with. If you want to do large deviations from what is listed there, my recommendation is to grab the revised storyteller handbook. That tends to be much more detailed when it says, here's how to change the setting. And, and when I think of future fates... Um, what do you think the most important one is? What would you say the first future fate a storyteller needs to needs to deal with is? First thing, to kind of decide what the most important future fate is, I think you kind of have to think about how to use them, what role do they play. Mm -hmm. You know, to your point about they don't give you that much to run with, I kind of feel like that's intentional. Mm -hmm. Opinions probably vary on whether that's a good choice, but I feel like it's intentional because to me, they seem to just be inviting you to make your own decisions because a lot of players will fall back on, no, but this is the canon. And to me, it was just sort of a way of officially saying, there's no official canon, take a breath, do what you want. And like making that the stance to minimize that tone in the community conversation. With that in mind, to me, the best way to use Future Fates as written is to sort of see the canon as shorthand for I don't have to explain this world to you when we sit down to play. All the players are going to show up. The meta plot matters because like does the thing that happened to the vice president 
impact you in a day-to-day manner? No. Did you see about it on the news? And does it impact your views of people that support that person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, it does. And so it could inform your interpersonal relationships because you have opinions about that stuff. So having everyone at a common cultural baseline in game is beneficial. You don't have to spend so much time building it. So to me, the advantage of the future fates is as a storyteller, I would go, all right, we got these 17 or probably more with technocracy future fates, or if you're using like storyteller vault books that use them. But these three are the ones that matter at my table. I'm going to print out the little blurb of text that I'm having as my base assumption that I want my players to have in their head. And I'm going to like hand them the PDF with that copied and pasted out and said, this is true at this table. All of you know that while you're making your characters and we can all come and decide what our opinions are on this, this setting. To me, that's where they shine. And in that respect, I think the most important future fate is the first one you have here. And that's about the Ascension War. Like, how did the Ascension War shake out? What is everyone's opinion on it? Is it the defeatist? If I'm a tradition, I'm like super even more underdog than first and second edition. I assume I'm losing and it's just a desperate fight for survival. Or do I still think I'm in it? Like, what is the headspace I should have my character being? Or at least that my character is used to navigating. Maybe I think I'm still in it, but most traditions are like fighting for survival and refuse to acknowledge there's really a chance. That's a, that's a whole thing. Oh my God. The mage version of the guy who keeps talking about high school. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I never considered wow, you're ma- not wrong. I'm never considered major horror game until you said that. Um. <laughs> oh God. It's, it is, yeah, it's true. Mages are all kind of that guy though. Like about their paradigm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There, I feel like the mage version of that is the guy who has apparently the hot girlfriend, but in Canada. Oh, I can do anything uh, under my paradigm. Show me. Well, n- not now. There are witnesses around that can't do it. Yeah. But like for me, like if I was going to say, what is the future fate that printing out this blurb and giving it to my players is going to impact the day to day at my table? That's the one where every game I need to pick one of those and share it. Most of the other future fates, does it matter to your chronicle is a question mark. It certainly matters to some and not others. But that one I think is pretty universal, unless you're just throwing the whole meta plot out. At which point, who cares about future fates? Exactly. <laughs> uh, formally within the future fates, it, it does ask the question of the Reckoning, the Sixth Age, the Masasa War, the Rogue Council. And it kind of says... Is the te- it asks, is the technocracy in ahead? Was the technocracy's victory premature? Are the traditions defiant survivals, uh, survivors uh, council? Has it transformed? Um, do we completely ignore revised? What is the nature of the Nefandi? And, and to me, my basic question is, how adverse do you want the world to be? And where do you want that adversity to come from? At the end of second edition, an interesting thing happened where the technocracy seemingly fell apart, where it was no longer this monolithic thing that had access to Maynar orbital nukes, except for when you needed to take out Zepathosura and just endless hit marks. If you want it to be playable, it can't be all powerful. And if you want to make someone else an antagonist and make the traditions weaker, their enemy has to get commensurately weaker as well. Otherwise, there's going to be a huge change in the balance of power. So to me, that mood knob of what are you up against and how is what do you want that to feel like tells a bunch of things. You can have a very powerful technocracy and a very powerful tradition world. One way of doing that is to say reality zones are super weird and super powerful. Yeah, the technocracy is dominant in the research triangle and has the ability to seemingly do a Terminator level hypertech. But the moment you get too far outside of that, 
you're going to start losing it, especially in the developing world. And then that kind of creates a world where the fight between paradigms is very much manifest in like the BRIC nations, where the Ascension War is settled in the United States and maybe in Shenzhen, China or something like that, or Japan. But it is very much up for grabs in Brazil, Russia, India, large portions of China or something like that. When you think of how the traditions can be arranged, do you have any any thoughts on like what some some of those little uh, settings can be? One of the ones that stood out to me as being really interesting in terms of how it impacts the traditions is the Hollow One betrayal. You know, there's this whole plot about was there a Hollow One that led the technocracy into Doisitep? And it was framed in the disparate section in the book where, oh, you've allied with the Hollow Ones. Will the traditions find out? Will they come for you? That is a perfectly legitimate story. It's a good future fate to have in the disparate section. But for me, why did the Hollow Ones leave? Like the Hollow Ones leaving their alignment with the traditions is culturally significant. I think that one and then what happened to the council. I think those two kind of have to be paired if tradition identity is a thing that matters in the game, and it often isn't, but if it does matter, I think that's going to impact all of the other traditions alignment, because if the council is down and the hollow ones have left, let's go over the extreme end, then kind of how do you get new initiates? What do they believe in? Why do they care? Especially a couple of the traditions that have long been acknowledged as like culturally a little lacking verisimilitude, like the dream speakers. Why are all these indigenous cultures aligned with the Eurocentric overall fight for reality? That comes into question of, are we even maintaining that? Is that maintainable? And so I think those two things, making those decisions, even if you don't share it with your players, you know, in detail, informing how you set up the political conflicts in your game as a storyteller, I think those are the key decisions for the reorganization of the tradition. What are some of the reasons that to you, the Hollowers could have left? And can you give a, a, a quick encapsulation of what the betrayal was? Since that happened kind yeah. of off screen, we haven't really talked yeah. about it much in Mage. A little bit of an asterisk. I, I haven't read all this Metaplot stuff in a long time, um, but I did read the refresher in, in the Future Fates. So Doisetep fell in the Metaplot and there was an assault on it, Doisetep being... Um, the center of hermetic power and the center for a lot of power for the Council of Nine, honestly, um, even though its roots were very hermetic. And there was an assault and it burned and it completely fell. Arguably, that had a, a major negative impact on the Umbra. There's a whole future fate about Doisetep specifically. It but, took out the digital yeah. web with it. It theoretically caused yeah. the great crash, unless you're the author of Virtual Adept Revised, who got that point wrong. If only someone would fix that in M20. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the, the plot threads is, did the was the technocracy able to get into Doisetep because an insider let them in? And what was heavily seeded is that a member of the Hollow Ones lured them in, like brought them in, gave them access, and set the whole stage for Doisetep's fall. Um, and all of the things that came after. What the future fate focuses on is basically equating that one person's action to the entire, I'm going to loosely call it a tradition, calling the Hollow Ones a tradition even before they left is a bit of a stretch. But the original mage Katif that they were, <laughs> we'll call them a tradition. If you have that plot point kind of hanging, whether that really happened, whether it's just a propaganda campaign, whether it's 
rumors or whatever it is, if you have that idea present in your world, then that can fuel part of why they left. I also honestly think if you step away from that, one of the biggest reasons for the Hollow Ones to have left is everyone else has a paradigm and their paradigm is postmodern. Nothing has meaning. I can make up my own, my own paradigm. Like they're eclectic Wiccans with a goth aesthetic at the end of the day. Um, you know, and they were designed that way because in first edition, they were the stand-in for the critique. They were what, like, orphans are a better corollary, and orphans were created because the Hollow Ones were weirdly specific to be the I'm not a tradition group. But then the Hollow Ones stuck around because people did like them, and, you know, World of Darkness players love a goth aesthetic. But really, like, they don't have a paradigm to hang their hat on. Not really. That's kind of their whole point. And so why would they stay with the traditions in a world where the disparate alliance becomes a thing yeah even the we need some political power kind of goes away at that point so i don't think you need that plot point to have them leave but it certainly creates a nice mystery aesthetic story to dig into in a chronicle i, I think there's a lot there and, um, and it also points in a lot of interesting directions and and just to clarify uh do fell to internal machinations horizon was uh led in by the by the hollow ambassador i think within it happened the hollow ambassador caused horizons fall yeah they oh, okay yeah got those mixed. <clears throat> that creates an interesting thing because if the hollowers left because the disparate alliance felt that the traditions were corrupt i think that creates a nice little nugget and allows you to really rearrange the pieces on the field and the hollowers are then entirely reasonable in what they did the hollowers themselves could have fallen to infernalism and that could have been a debate they could have sold out to the technocracy or as victor said it could be a reflection of what the hollowers thought of the traditions there is nothing useful happening here this is just a whole bunch of wizards in horizon sniffing their own farts creating this kind of useless thing and just the idea that sometimes it's useful for someone to just kind of shake the can and see what happens uh, provides a whole bunch of options. When it comes to the the organization of the technocracy, do you have any any thoughts on like, hey, here are some of the things that the, what the technocracy could look like? I have a lot of thoughts on what the technocracy <laughs> could look like. Actually, I would say I have far more opinions on the technocracy than the traditions. Yeah, and I have a hard time separating what's good canon story, what's well-structured and interesting of what was published from my big structural views of the technocracy. Mm -hmm. So my big structural views of the technocracy more or less boil down to associating all purely scientific paradigm with authoritarianism doesn't work. It just, that, that doesn't work. That said, your two options there are have some purely technomantic paradigm outside the technocracy and all the technomancers we have have been fairly heavily framed as technomystics to some degree with the etherites and the adepts having moved that direction so they can collaborate with the traditions but like there's an aspect of that now you don't have a purely we believe in technomancy we just don't believe in authoritarianism that doesn't exist but at the same time if you soften the technocracy from the inside you lose the fact that like authoritarianism is a thing that has a place in age and we need a purely authoritarian group. So like structurally the world isn't built to make sense and have a place for all the things that need to be there. So like, as far as I'm concerned, nuke the whole thing and start over. That's my view on the technocracy. Yeah. That said, 
even the future fates aren't really willing to be quite that radical. So I think the best way to kind of stick with the conspiratorial hidden agenda themes of mage for me is to have a really core root of authoritarianism in the technocracy. I'm not a big fan of it coming from Nefandi. Like there are three future fates related to their organization. It's all the Nefandi. They're totally corrupt. They're going to destroy the world. It's not the Nefandi at all. It's just hubris. And it's mostly hubris, but there are some Nefandi here. I like that last one. Mm -hmm. And this relates to the fact there could be some Nefandi here, I feel, is always an option. Kind, yeah, absolutely. Kind of like after dinner. No, I might have a little bit more room. There's always there's always space for a Nefandi. Uh, for a there's always room for the call. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't like it all being the Nefandi because I like the human hubris angle. I like the enemies in the mirror. That's always how I play mage. So the idea of the conspiracies trying within the technocracy, trying to make things better, having room for well-intentioned agents, but having the majority of the technocracy being sort of an authoritarian hellscape, that speaks to me. I think that's the best balance to strike if you're not willing to just like create your non-authoritarian scientists totally outside of the technocracy. And a lot of fans don't even want that. Mm -hmm. They want the hard conspiracy. If they exist outside the technocracy, they're secretly technocracy puppets. And like, I acknowledge that's the thing a lot of players want. So mm -hmm. for me, the, the questions I always kind of ask are, um, I like to present the traditions as if they really got their stuff together, they would win or they would do vastly better, whatever. To me, there are not nearly as many technocrats as there are mages just because the process to create the idea of getting that spark of inspiration within the rigors of that kind of academic pipeline that generally seemingly produces technocrats, I feel is less inclined towards awakening. I like the idea that there's a certain kind of stressful that makes awakening more likely. And guess guess who's going to experience that stress? The downtrodden and the repressed. Like oppressed peoples are going to awaken at a higher rate. Not because they themselves are magical people, but because the circumstances that causes awakening are more likely to happen to people who are not part of the dominant power faction within a game. So I like having relatively powerful traditions that are bad at cooperating. And that is a case where if the characters do have the ability to line a few things, they can unleash some pretty impressive resources. So the technocracy, in terms of numbers, is maybe twice as large as the largest tradition. It's not nearly as large as the council, but everyone is pulling in the same direction. And then I have Nefandi being relatively rare to show how much damage you can do with Entropy 5. To show, <laughs> to show when you put that pressure at the critical point, you can cause a lot of destruction. And the more built up a system is, the more often fragile it is going to be. So just in terms of kind of the interplay between those forces, that's kind of what I I go for. That's that's me personally. Um, that It also gives you a deep background to say, hey, my character has four dots and contacts. That should mean a lot. You, uh, What's the line from Hannibal? I'm not rich enough to buy a senator, but I can periodically rent one. I, I think it's really cool when a group can tug on um, someone's uh, robes and periodically, maybe for a three-day weekend, get a master that owes you a favor to do something. I think that creates a lot of real neat plot points. But in terms of where they fall, I like to look at factions in terms of the metaphysical trinity. And I think it is interesting that if we say you have dynamism, primordialism, and stasis, if the technocrats are the statics and the major, uh, the traditions are balanced, the Nefandi and the Marauders are interesting because they're the only two that are, have one-way valves that go to them. I want a 
there's no turning back technocracy adjunct, some mystical static faction, or alternatively, it can be one of those things. Uh, once you become a T4, you basically get a tracker that's implanted at the base of your skull and you can't leave without it blowing or something like that. I, I really wanted there, there to be a no turning back, but I think it's an interesting option for a world where the traditions are more or less the white mages. Let's, let's not shit ourselves about it. Europe has a lot of factions. And even when the Virtual Depths and the Society of Ether joined, that, that was more white mages and, and one replaced the Ali the Batine. And then you have the disparates that say, there's magic in the rest of the world. We are downtrodden, but we, we have variety as our power. We have a breadth, whereas the traditions have a depth. And the technocracy is just, hey, we are the power of cooperation. And now you have these three factions that are having political rivalries, and then the goal of the game becomes mostly dealing with external threats of the Nefandi, the Star Squids, or something like that. that. That is an opportunity, and that is a play space that I think it would be really neat to see a supplement about, to really have the playable disparates, the playable technocrats, and the playable uh, traditionalists all without having to worry too much about things overlapping, that they can really have that core and not have to cover everything. I really like that. I also think that take on the strength of the technocracy makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other thing about the technocracy is even if you did have an equal number of technocrats to tradition mages, I feel like most of the technocrats would be one, maybe two Arate. Mm -hmm. okay. Because the thing that I have seen happen over and over working in you know companies and spaces that are good real world corollaries to the technocracy is people burn out. You lose your belief in what you're doing mm. because you see how it's, it's playing out. Like the belief in the vision, um, the people who have that are very rare. And often concerning. Um. Yes, often concerning. <laughs> Not always, but often. And, but I think that those people, the thing that they are able to do is extract the enlightenment from other people. Like when you go in one of those spaces, one of those companies, maybe you do reach enlightenment, you hit one or two Arate, your, the potential of your enlightenment is sort of extracted and brought into the collective working. It's what the syndicate is good at, extract value from my workers, and then burn out, and maybe you actually lose your enlightenment. Like, I think there's a space for that grist mill in the technocracy mm. that would also keep the numbers small, but the potential of all of that does end up somewhere and they are making use of that, even though their persistent numbers over time could be much lower. What do you feel this, this leaves the Marauders and the Nefandi kind of up in the air. The Marauders have never really gotten a formal treatment in their role in the Ascension conflict, except one, he had a fascinating take on it as them being change agents and bringing back the, the mythic age. What are the roles that you feel the Nefandi can take in a chronicle at a large scale? I think that's really tricky. I've used Nefandi twice in my games. Um, I'm in the middle of one of those stories where I'm using them now. And they're weirdly destructive to a lot of the themes of Mage. Because even with Book of the Fallen, that adds a lot of nuance to the nature of their evil and makes it more like actual evil you run into with real people and so you can tell a more human story with it they're still just evil like at the end of the day they're just evil and it's in their nature and uh, that wipes away a lot of the nuance and moral gray areas that make doubt seep into mage and i think 
that doubt, uh, the tension between we should doubt this, we're kind of awful, and I absolutely don't doubt that, and that's what makes me a mage. Like the tension between those two things is what makes mage interesting, and the Nefandi compromised that. Hmm. So the first time I used them, there were actual Nefandi, they were really doing things, and I didn't particularly care for how the story played out. This time that I'm using them, there are no Nefandi. The players are starting a year after a Nefandi was defeated, but what had to happen to defeat that Nefandi sort of took the, the mages that defeated them off the map because they had to be so extreme. And while they defeated and got rid of the Nefandi, they didn't have enough umph left to clean up everything the Nefandi broke. And it was all kind of hidden by their working, and now their working can't last forever. And the players are having to go back in and make sense of a part of the world that was just wrecked by fallen magic. That's turning out to be interesting. What do I do with the fallout of evil? And so I think having the Nefandi at a high level, having them, you know, have the Nefandi have corrupted some part of the technocracy, even if most of it's just hubris, and your technocracy players are suddenly hit with that and they have to like deal with it. And do I follow orders? Do I face the fact that maybe the people above me aren't right? But like, don't put them up against an Afandi that often because mm. like that's not that interesting. That's been my experience with them. And it's kind of interesting because we get a lot of interesting peeks into it that they could just be evil mages, but why have a term for it? To me, I do like the Nefandi being the cult of the star squid because those are the people, there are a lot of evil mages out there and people call each other Nefandi all day long. But in the same way that somebody could be a... Uh, just because a mage is religious doesn't mean they're a chorister, and just because someone is animistic doesn't mean they're a dream speaker. Just because someone is evil doesn't mean that they're a nefandus. Um, so I do like the idea that there are a small group of very evil mages that actively want to destroy everything. But if they are to represent the primordial aspect of the metaphysical trinity, I think there are going to be a fair number of eco-terrorists and similar things like that in the same way that the Marauders can kind of showcase this is what happens when you take your bold stand against reality. What about the characters that are taking a bold and highly destructive stance against civilization or humanity as a concept? Antinatalists? I think there are a lot of interesting directions you can take the Nefandi. And the thing that pleases me to no end, there is no detect evil spell in Mage. People insist that Entropy 1 can detect the worm. Nah, not really. That's not how that works. Uh, you get Ring of Truth, and that's about it. So the, the idea that Nefandi is just like something like in the U.S., the way apparently calling someone a communist is a thing that you can do. <laughs> I think calling someone a Nefandi as a political marker I think is kind of an interesting space. I think there are a lot of games where you can have the Nefandi as a presence, but without actually having a, a single Nefandus character sheet created. I, I like it as the dark temptation of power. I think mechanically, and this is something I'm, I'm working on a write-up of, I think Nefandi should progress in magic faster. They just have to give a little bit more of their soul over each time. And I think that dark seduction is something that can be really interesting without there being so many. I've even gone to the length of having it not be the Nefandi, but the Nefandus. That literally in every mage's journey, a figure in a time of strife will reach out and extend their hand and say, I will help you in exchange for this. And that is the, the lone Nefandus. It is almost like the Sith. There's only one, and that may be enough. Technically, there are two Sith, but um, <laughs> but there's there's a lot of places you can go. There are also options where you present the Nefandi as like 
winning the Ascension Conflict. I don't find that to be interesting. I really like them to be somewhere between the rumor and the threat level. The one thing, though, the Nefandi do kind of help determine is what is the disparate alliance doing? And one of the things that is presented is the traditions want to take out the technocracy. The disparate alliance think that the traditions or the technocracy or someone has dealt with Nefondic infiltration. Well, I have one more quick thought Shoot. on the Nefondi based on something you said. So when you talked about having the Nefondas that reaches out their hand at some point during the mage's journey, that makes me think about two things. One that's in the world of darkness and one that's outside. The one that's in the world of darkness is the role of harrowings and wraiths because that's kind of like harrowings dragging you further into oblivion. But the thing that every book is clear on is harrowings used to be an absolutely critical part of transcendence. Okay. What, what is a harrowing? When you're a wraith and you have a connection to oblivion, all wraiths are connected to oblivion through their shadows. And whenever something particularly traumatic happens to you, you take all your health levels and damage, your fetter is destroyed. There are a few other things that can cause it. You are dragged down into the labyrinth. Um, the labyrinth is, the home base of oblivion uh, in the underworld and all the local specters, the race that have given up trying to resist oblivion all play out some horrible psychodrama related to your particular psychology. And they learn all the particular ways to like punch you in the emotional gut, the worst way from your shadow, which conspires with them to say, here's the story you have to tell. Screw this person over the worst. And in the current setting, they are always horrible. They always are designed to drag you towards oblivion. They're trying to make you fail screwing up a harrowing can permanently, like you lose permanent health levels if you mm -hmm. screw them up. It's bad. But in every book, it's always described that way back in the day, they were necessary. They were never pleasant. They were always, here's the horrible dark thing from inside you. We're going to make you face it. But they used to be more in that concept of real productive Jungian shadow work. And now they are completely non-productive. Mm. So like there's that that I know is a cosmological thing in the world of darkness. And the other thing is a somewhat, I won't say heretical, but off the mainstream interpretation of the wandering in the desert story about Jesus and the temptation that is, you know, the mainstream view of that time in the desert is the devil was trying to tempt him. But there's a different interpretation of that that's very descent into the fire Sephiroth and the need to purify through destruction that is, if you never face that temptation, you will never grow. You have to go through that and resist it. And that's the reason temptation exists. That's the reason Lucifer does the things he does. Again, not mainstream, but hey, all this demon angel stuff was originally apocrypha anyway, right? Who cares? But like from a narrative standpoint of like that exists in our societal consciousness, putting that into the path of ascension to me makes the Nefandi make cosmological sense. Yeah, they've fallen. They've taken on that role. The only way to take on that role is to actually be committed to it. And that means you don't get to ascend. So sorry, but like facing the fact that maybe that's necessary is something most mages wouldn't want to do. And when there's something necessary that mages wouldn't really want to do, that's where good stories live in this game. For I, I really like the idea that you, on one end, you have seekings where you pursue wisdom, and on the other end, you have to eschew some kind of metaphysical temptation, a, a way of like purging hubris. And the outline is the temptation of, uh, of Christ, not to be confused with the last temptation of Christ, um, is that in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, I think, uh, Jesus uh, is in the Judean desert, and over the period of 40 days and 40 nights, uh, Satan appears and tries to tempt him in a number of cases to be like, you're hungry. I know you can make, I know you can make food. 
how about you whip that up a little? And Jesus is like, no. And then Jesus just is hangry for another 40 days. And it's kind of interesting because there's the line in the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, Jesus having been tempted in every way that we are except without sin. And you're like, what the dink does that mean? But I do like that idea that um, just as in there uh, are a collection of secondary entities and mage like the psychopomps, there could be other agents that are there to cast temptation and their agents are the Nefandi. And either like Wraith, they have fallen or they themselves are a true thing. And to extend the biblical thing, what if they are the Judases in the Gnostic sense of it, that they have to be there to cause this thing to to enable this other kind of spiritual enlightenment? I, I'm liking this. With that said about the Nefandi, the question about the disparate alliance and the future fate there, do they exist? Mm-hmm. You know, what happened to the disparates? And the options there are kind of, uh, they're still the independent crafts from first and second edition, and nothing ever changed. Mm-hmm. They were really absorbed into the traditions, the way Revised treated them, or they formed this disparate alliance that is out to stop, you know, all of the Nefandi corruption in the technocracy and they and they believe the traditions as well and personally i have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the disparate alliance because from a game design standpoint i think they're probably the best thing m20 did Hmm. they give all of these other groups with more variety and let's be honest more relatable stories because the traditions were designed to be character classes. Mm-hmm. Like you go back to first edition, that's what they were. That's hard to like write a story that keeps that root and is still like a believable, full of verisimilitude group of humans. And the disparates don't have that problem. They were always written to be a group of humans that make sense together. And I think giving them a role that is as large as the technocracy and the traditions from a game balance design standpoint is it's good design. From a purely story standpoint, I don't know that I believe it. <laughs> Why are they all cooperating? You know, do I want Nefandi to be that present in my meta? And then if they aren't, but I like the Disparate Alliance, why do they exist? I think they need a whole book. Like, they need a lot more than what M20 had the bandwidth to give them to finish making them make sense. But I like them existing. I don't know. What are your thoughts on the Disparates? I come out to a similar place. So the thing the thing about the disparates is I like traditions that are very political. That to the practitioner of Falun Gong, just because they have a cultural practice tied to East Asia does not make them an Akashic. Uh, to me, the Greek Stoics would be in the Akashiana. I like having very broad tents. In the Mage, the podcast Discord, whenever someone's like, what, what tradition would so-and-so be in? If I can come up with at least six answers... I think I've done due diligence. Problem is, we don't have enough information about necessarily the political motivations of the traditions. That's something we got in revised like twice. And if there are, say, 13 parts of the Disparate Alliance, I can come up with a bunch of ways that 10 of them would get along. There's always a few where I'm like, eh! One of the simplest ones being the Knights Templar and the Sisters of Hippolyta, because one is fervently polytheistic and the other one is fervently not. It could be one of those things where the disparate alliance is something that all disparates are invited to join. Like, for instance, it could be one of those things like the AAA for mages, where you pay your dues, you do your quest, and you would have dots in disparate alliance, and you would be able to call on them, but you would need to be a member. And membership could be open to 
all mages uh, based on some basic thing, or it just drew from the crafts as a kind of mutual aid society. Or, as you said, the Nefandi have to be real present to, to make those kind of strange bedfellows. The thing I do like about it is if we then have the traditions over here, that lets the traditions not have to have as big a tent. They get to be a little bit more focused. The disparates can be kind of a counter to that with a different model, something that's maybe more spread out versus the traditions all going through Horizon or something like that. It gives room for new crafts because there have to be more than the ones that we have gotten. No page in M20 has generated more questions to me as a host than the little section that's like, here's a bunch of other groups that could join the uh, the disparates. And it's like the Itza'a, the, the House of Thunder, the uh, the Red Thorn Dedicates, the Gokasari Gama. And people are like, do we ever get it? No, we never got any more interesting on them. Literally every sentence is more fascinating than the last. And they're like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of Mayan time priests. How about that? I'm like, why, why do we not? Why, where is that book? Alternatively, the traditions fell and someone else is trying to clean up after it. I, I think that's an, that's an interesting direction. But also at the same time, it's a, it's a game. So of all the contrivances I can make, the one where these, these people kind of get along with one another, I, I'm okay with that, even if, it's, even if it's one of those things where, oh, I won't work with her. So part of it becomes the office drama of, okay, we have these five missions we need to take care of. What team can I cobble together to take care of them? But to me, the disparate alliance is something that occurs, that is formed of a set of reciprocal relationships from various members of each craft that have some sort of social pull. There is no horizon. There is no council. Uh, there is no, yeah, there is no uh, table tentacle that everyone gathers round. But there is this informal whisper network that is a combination of the contract, like the contacts background. And I could see there being a disparate version of requisitions that's kind of a little bit derpy. <laughs> like you don't always quite get what you want. Like, yeah, I understand that you wanted a private jet. Uh, we were able to get you a biplane, but the biplane has two dots of arcane. Yeah, I also kind of like the idea of the disparate alliance as a thing, but not really a thing. Mm hmm. Um, which is, in a lot of ways, in my head, very mage. So the technocracy is an organization. They are, an inc they are incorporated. They have articles of incorporation, and they are on file, and they are a legal entity, and they have a tax ID. Um, I the, hope the technocracy as an entity <laughs> exists in Delaware. Like, that that, that oh, would be the secret yeah. thing to give away. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're incorporated in the Cayman Islands. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> yes, sorry. But, <laughs> like, we found the technocracy, and it's just this empty office in the Cayman Islands, and we're like, this technocracy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and then the traditions are these set of ancient pacts and agreements between these groups that have an organizational structure, et cetera. And some of this stuff is sort of reflected in the section on mystical group discipline at mm -hmm. the end of Book of Secrets. And then it gets into the disparates and it talks about, oh, well, they're starting to learn they need, you know, how they need to have disciplines and rules. But that still implies that they're a real organization. What I'd actually like the Disparate Alliance to be and what I think serves as a good conclusion to that trinity is they're not an organization. They are maybe an open-ended pact that if you agree to this pact and anyone is open to agree to it, but maybe the groups in the book are the only ones who have a large population of members who take part, then your house will be a safe haven. You will give quarter to, you will give assistance to, you have some aligned motivations. 
And maybe you have ways of mystically tagging your chantry, your sanctum as, hey, this is a this is a disparate safe house. And if we're the sisters of Hippolyta and you show up and you're a Templar, all of the tensions we have, all of the history, all of the things that would prevent us from being in a structured organization will come to play. But we're going to honor this pact and you recognize the damage of pushing it so far that the pact can't be honored and then give some magical repercussions that maybe even uh, if it gets bad enough, it could break down globally. Like I like the idea that it is a self-emergent, almost anarchic agreement among independent entities, you know, and, and for people who've listened to me on other podcasts, you'll know, like this is my personal bias showing through. But I like the idea that that sort of phenomenon could have a presence in mage because I think there's a place for it. Do you feel that anarcho-syndicalism is underrepresented within the canon? I think anarcho-syndicalism is underrepresented in all of the World of Darkness games to the yeah. shock of <laughs> no one who has heard my voice before. My, my summary of that is, yes, the if the Templar comes to the Sisters of Apollo, they will feed you, but there's no guarantee that they're not spitting in your hamburger. Yep. yep. True facts. Yes. <laughs> Uh, do you think we should have more crafts or do you think mage kind of has enough that like make onesie twosie as you need it? D do you think we should have another 15 new ones? Yes and no. I don't think we should have 15 new ones that all get their full two page spreads mm -hmm. because there is a point. Um, and I say this as a changeling player because changeling passed this point. Let me tell you where there are so many groups that none of them will ever get the attention to really be all that interesting or useful. Mm -hmm. And sometimes your favorite one only ever has two pages ever and was forgotten when the 20th edition was released. The developer admitted on your Facebook wall. No, that's not <laughs> weirdly specific. Um, you know, <laughs> so no, but I do think the structure to say there are more crafts out there. If there is a culture that we have not explicitly written up, yes, there's a craft and like have a couple one line references and short acknowledgements. We're like, we're not going to pretend we have the bandwidth to do a write up on all of this. And then you get into it and like, no, we're never going to finish developing it because you can't develop 900 groups. But I think in the canon, what's published should not be seen as the edges of the box, if that makes sense. Yeah. I would want to see that book of two-page write-ups, except for it's like, pick eight. It is historical accident that the uh, Solificati were a craft and not a chantry. They're like, at their minimum, there were six of them. I'm like, you're not a craft at that point, especially compared to the Bata'a, where it's like, yeah, we have a we have 200 million mortals. And I'm like, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> that's a lot that I would have loved to have seen. Or maybe a few more, not quite to Izatep, but a few very powerful chantries that have their own personal things. Like we, we briefly got in the Book of Chantries, like the Lodge of the Gray Squirrel and so on. I, I would like some things that are, uh, that are power players at a regional level and not necessarily at a paradigmic level. One of the things that I like in Scion is some of the pantheons in the Pacific Rim kind of do balance between are we going to keep fealty to this local area and whatever indigenous beliefs and gods we have here or the faiths that have infiltrated their way in and I really like that uneasy tension where 
on one end of the spectrum, they may be declared Deva by the, uh, by the Hindu pantheon or something like that. Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, they're like, no, she's a volcano goddess. She blows up periodically. It's her deal. She's real good at it. And generally it allows for geothermal power. Why you got in a bug up your butt? Yeah. I would like either more crafts or, or maybe a four, a few more named powerhouse, uh, chantries that your players could be members of to give it some plot to run with. And I'll say, I like the idea that there'd eventually be space. Maybe if more licensors start creating things in future editions or whatever it looks like, there'd be more space to write up a really intensely regional book. Mm -hmm. And if you could say, do a whole book on Hawaii and, you know, maybe there are more groups that represent, you know, the indigenous cultures of Hawaii than, you know, just the Kopalue and you've got a book and you can do more than a two page flat on them, write them up. Mm -hmm. Like if you can do them justice, write them up. I just don't want 25 more two page write-ups that will never get expanded beyond yeah. that. Like I don't, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there isn't like a stopping point. I don't want us to go past. Uh, so we've talked about the factions in the Ascension war. And I guess one of the hidden questions is how, front and center is the Ascension conflict, how it, at each other's throats are they. One of the ones that I think is interesting is the difference between a cold war and a hot peace. I would argue that geopolitically right now we are in a hot peace where we have major powers who are prodding each other and using proxy actors as a way to incite action as opposed to a cold war where everyone was watching everyone else and they kind of knew what the rules were. We're in a space where we don't know what that is. And the idea of the Ascension conflict having been at a standstill and then it starts moving it again and no one's quite sure why, I think is an interesting place to explore, especially if you want your mage game to mirror the geopolitics of our world. And likewise, there is now space in Mage where if you really want to have that Cold War thing where some treaty set things in place between the traditions and the technocracy, where at the end of the day, the technocracy didn't win. We don't have cloning tanks on the corners yet. There was a limit to what the sleepers could take. Vaccines uptake is pretty crappy in a lot of spaces. To say the technocracy won, like we're not at luxury, fully automated luxury gay space communism yet. We have a lot more work to get there that we have that option. Uh, do you feel there are any other fundamental ways you can take the, the kind of what the Ascension War is? The thing I've found is I like having the factions be primarily populated by true believers. Mm -hmm. And then I like really compromising those beliefs as best I can as a storyteller and being like, hey, you know, maybe you need to cooperate with someone from the other side because this over here is worse. And you're both trying to do what's best for humanity, as it turns out. But they're not totally selfish. You maybe disagree with their goals, but like, what does that mean? But at the same time, you have to have conflict. You have to have tension. I, I also think, you know, when Revised was written, the last time we got really solid meta plot, it kind of felt like the technocracy had won. You know, vaccines were progressing. The internet was going to, you know, make a brave new world. And there wasn't going to be a, a single bad thing about the internet at all. And we were all going to discover ourselves and make social connections. and Nothing bad could possibly happen. And mm, yeah, I mean, then everything that happened post 9-11 then everything that happened like with the breakdown of truth, then the pandemic, we've now seen, you know, conspiracy theories rise and like all the conspiracy theories that Mage was built on, we now like have their weird anti-Semitic roots front and center as opposed to this old thing that we got to ignore in their pop culture manifestation. And like that, I can't do that anymore. 
it makes engaging with certain parts of the mage meta a little difficult. Are you, you telling know, me that having the New World Order and the pogrom as a thing is a... Uh, <laughs> okay, so the reasons choice. I listed earlier for nuking the technocracy and starting over weren't my only reasons, all right? Yeah, I, I don't need that. I'm in a blue state, you know, speaking to the, the blue-red divide on, on vaccine uptake, because you mentioned it, and we're still way below the national average on vaccine uptake. And the reasons for that are terrifying and very much speak to mage. We certainly aren't at a moment where the tradition seemed to be doing any better than they were when the re revised was written, but the technocracy one narrative just doesn't resonate anymore. It had verisimilitude when revised was published. It's not anymore. So then the question is, are these future fates even enough to navigate that? You know, are they enough to create a world at your table that feels like a dark reflection of the world we're in now? I'm increasingly both saying and hearing players go, how do I make a dark reflection of this? The world of darkness as written is kind of better. I, I think my favorite direction to take that is the technocracy could not deal with progress. Uh, Nick Bostrom does the thought experiment of what if we lived in a, a world where the laws of physics were such that microwaving sand would create a nuclear blast? And to me, one of the things that makes it interesting is if there is this sense of inevitability and decay and loss, how do we put the brakes on that? And that to me is an interesting thing, especially when you have one group in the game that's like, no, unleash human potential and the technocracy being like, have you seen what human potential can do? Like, <laughs> well, But what's funny is that was the order of reasons mission statement. Mm -hmm. Like if you go back to Sorcerer's Crusade, when it's like the traditions just lost all their authoritarian power and they're, you know, whining about it like five-year-olds, um, and the order of reason is like, let us make all the tools and give them to humanity and humanity will use the tools and elevate themselves. It's amazing how things invert perfectly when the group in power changes. It's almost like the paradigm doesn't matter as much as for human nature. I think the best explanation I heard of that was the uh, the one that comes up in technocracy, in Guide to the Technocracy, where they're like, what do you think is safer? Teaching everyone, if, if someone wants to heat up soup, teaching everyone to summon a fire elemental or giving everyone a microwave. And it is interesting, yeah, how that how that inverted over time. And, and with that happiness, um, I, I feel like there, there are two remaining kind of classes of questions that a setting can have. One are, what happened? And we get a whole bunch of metaplot events. And these are actually, to me, more independent than they are presented as being. Like within this is, uh, let's just rattle them off. The Masasa War. Uh, the the Order of Hermes is like, fuck you, Tremere. And Tremere is like, no, fuck you. And you don't need a reckoning for that to happen. You can just have a bunch of bored hermetics. You can have the Sixth Great Maelstrom. Giant Storm happens in the underworld because Xerxes Jones uh, was trying to wake up a Malfian to weaken the power of the Fondi if you're Richard Dansky, or was just bored and had a three-day weekend if you're any of the other devs. Richard Dansky, we love you. If you ever want to talk, just podcast at gmail.com. It would be great. Anyway, the Sixth Great Maelstrom occurred, which kind of cleared the underworld to allow Orpheus to exist. Uh, we had the rise of the, you had the Sphinx, which is basically going, no, 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 take the fight to the technocracy. And then you had Panopticon that is like, what the hell is this fake? So why are they telling people to take the fight to the technocracy? And then Panopticon comes into existence, which is this, which is everyone but the syndicate starts starts beating up the traditions again. You have the Sphinx, uh, as I said, that appeared, the, the Rogue Council. I like the idea of the Council and the Rogue Council existing at the same time. Oh, yeah. I love that idea. 
And those are kind of, to me, the key events plus the Avatar Storm. And those are very give and take to me. I think my favorite option of all the future fates is the Avatar Storm happened and it passed. And everything is kind of jumbled and broken. And now Horizon Realms are real cool, but no one likes hanging around in them for too long. Are there any particular events that you think are particularly interesting in that list as happening? Like you made mention to the the Rogue Council. What what does a game look like when the tradition, when the Horizon Council and the Rogue Council exist? What does that look like to you? To me, that looks like sort of an Ascension War within the Ascension War. Because using the tradition write-ups from M20 as an example, M20 tried to take all of these pretty archaic traditions and pull them into, you know, the 20 teens. And it did it fairly successfully, but the idea of the old council, which is populated by all of these archmages who are how old? Like, they can't exist on the mud ball anymore. That lets you know how old they are. And then they're facing the rapid, rapid, rapid change of the late 20th century and now 21st century. And how would they adapt to that? They fall, then have them off the map for a little bit, not dead, but off the map, like out of out of contact, raise a new council that is rooted in how the world works now and how quickly things change and being adaptable. And then the old council comes back. And maybe they don't have the consensus of young mages on their side, but they've got power power that the new council does not have. And you get a really interesting schism between what the old council would view as you're all just tools of the technocracy. Like, yeah, you say you're not members, but you're doing the kind of compromising that was why we couldn't put up with the damn Bettini and their unity BS. And you get a really interesting, like full on legitimate conflict without ever having to bring the technocracy into it. And the technocracy being torn between, oh God, these terribly dangerous archmages that could totally be like a tier 10 threat are back on the board, but it's breaking the entire stability of our primary strategic enemy. Is this an acceptable risk? Question mark. Like that, boom, right there. We've got a whole addition there. Like that could fuel so many mage stories. I think that works out really elegantly, actually. I think the one that I am most fascinated by is I love the Sphinx because it does two things. It gives you a fetch quest person. And unlike having like a bunch of dots and mentor where like, you know, where the person lives, it's much more mysterious and therefore interesting to me that you can build up this weird collection of things. And and to me, when you deal with the Sphinx, you get to have fun with what the transmissions from the Sphinx look like. What are those little artifacts? Is the Sphinx compromised, which is a red herring that you can play around with? It can play into that rogue council to be like, oh, wow, you have you have the, tr- the the original council, but also this other seemingly super powerful thing that's doing stuff. The Sphinx is the thing that gets the disparate alliance to play together, I think is also an option. What is it? Have fun. The sense of weirdness that the Sphinx as an entity out there creates, I think is pretty fascinating, Uh, especially when they make mention that the Sphinx has started to create transmissions that go to technocrats, or uh, some of them have been intercepted, or people are faking transmissions from the Sphinx. I think the Sphinx can always exist, and the other thing it does is it it lets you do an exposition dump, where the Sphinx is like, you get this dossier, traditionalist, which you normally don't get. Here's a page on this paradigm. Do, do, do. <laughs> Terry, this just says Wikipedia. Shut up and read. 
I, I think the Sphinx can always can always exist. Yeah, I agree. I also I've had a lot of thoughts recently about the nature of arch, arch magic, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not a big fan of the arch arch spheres. If anyone out there is, I'm sorry. But I think the place where arch magic really shines is I've got more than five arite. I've got several spheres at high levels, and I've started to understand how to target things that most people don't think of as things. I've started to understand how to target the societal idea of a thing and manipulate it. And thinking about things like that as a target, a a communal trauma, I can manipulate a communal trauma. And I think that opens up a lot of arch magic madness without actually changing any of the spheres. Just treat that as a single target with appropriately increased success needs to, to make those changes. And I think the idea of the Sphinx as a communal avatar is really interesting. Mm. You then have those transmissions start to go to the technocracy and then all of the coping mechanisms the technocracy has to explain away when their avatar speaks to them. This is just genius. This is just inspiration. Maybe I see something in the mirror and I'm having a conversation with it, but like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell myself it's something else. Apply all of those psychological coping mechanisms to how they engage with those signals and it becomes your avatar whispering to you, but your avatar is just one slightly unique emanation of a societal avatar. And people start to notice how these moments of inspiration are coordinated and impact each other in ways that are standalone. They are not coordinated by humans. I think there's amazing story and surreal weirdness there. And especially if you think about the Sphinx in those terms, Maybe the Sphinx always was and always will be as long as mages make. Mm. Yeah, I, I do like the idea that, um, what is it, that the marauders get confluxes? That when they're in a certain space, their avatars all just kind of exchange notes. And suddenly, yes. maybe you get a new dot of something. Maybe a talisman moves back and forth. Maybe you have a sudden urge to have like a grilled cheese sandwich. And no one's quite sure why. I, I wish the avatar were a little bit weirder in that way. And I really like the idea of there being a few of these uh, mega avatar or something that you are tied to, which is an idea we got in one E in uh, the book of shadows where it talked about uh, avatar lineages. I think that's real neat, Mr. Kinzer. Um, and I look forward to us never being able to write up a supplement on it. Um, I, <laughs> I really think there's space on the storyteller vault for like 2000 word supplements. That's something I may try and do in the upcoming year. I think the arch magic nut there's something there that's really neat that justifies it exists its existence. And I have toyed around with a few ways of doing it. Like when you use forces six, it is strictly more efficient than using forces five. Another thought I had is you get a five dot window. When you get your six dot of forces, you lose your first dot of forces. So you can only use forces two through six. You are incapable of that small an engagement with the sphere as, as something that I was trying to, to play around with or something like you can get arch mastery, but you can't get fewer than four successes. What does that mean? Or something like that. So uh, to me, the, the last thing we have are some kind of basic questions about magic. And the book says things like how powerful are reality zones? How potent are nodes? The node background is no longer a thing where you're like, you get this many points per week. It's just a scale thing. How powerful are our chantries as an idea? How many realms are there out there? Are those ever questions that you specifically think about or do, or do they always just kind of fall in place for you or something else? 
I do think about them generally when I start a campaign. Okay. And I do this with any game I run that has a, a resource replenishment stat. I just go, what is the scale? Because that is probably the easiest knob to turn to set the tone of your game. Because if your players get three quintessence at the beginning of every session, that is going to be a very different game from, okay, a day might be two or three sessions because we're going to pick up where we left off and your Chantry gives you collectively five quintessence a week. Those are massively different games. Mm -hmm. And so I do tend to think about that. I don't really think about it in terms of the way the future fates are framed, though. Mm -hmm. I always just go, what's the theme? What's the mood? What's my number? I might tweak it if the game doesn't end up with quite the tone that I thought that number would give me. I, I treat that sort of the way, like, the WoW people treat game balancing patch to patch. <laughs> like, so yeah, I guess I really only think about that mechanically because ultimately that number is just, it's not a real thing in world. Like, five quintessence is not a thing in world. It doesn't exist. It's just not. And so I'm like, I am tweaking the systems to get to get theme and play balanced go. That said, I, I I could definitely see how other people would want to tie that more directly into theme. I guess I do sometimes with changeling because that relates more to how deep into winter are you or mm. is this spring? Yeah. But in mage, it's more just like, I'm just power balancing. Yeah, the, the idea of how powerful are horizon realms, I find to be an interesting one where it asks the questions of like, so where's the cool stuff happening? And I generally want the arrow to point back at Earth. You can do super cool stuff in Horizon Realms, but it's kind of useless. Like one of my favorite ones was when they were talking about Autochthonia. Autochthonia is a terrible place to test technologies because everything there works perfectly. There's nothing you can take back. And the idea of like, oh, this realm is set up to my paradigm. Once I go back to Earth, everything's now at a plus two difficulty because I'm so used to how things work. Uh, so to me, those are the things of what are the reasons to go off Earth? And if there are, there, there are kind of two options. One is all the cool stuff happens on Earth. That's where the quintessence is. The other one is... Earth has quintessence, but the paradigm has cooled. So what you want to do is kind of rob Earth and then create your own little realm somewhere and so on and so forth. In Mage, we, we get some information about the shard and shade realms and they become slightly more accessible. But that stuff always felt like a Rite 567 things. And I just don't play games there. A long running game for me, someone will have one sphere at four dots, maybe two, and might get an Arite of five. And it's it's real hard to get a bunch of characters to survive in a shard realm for a, for, for a while. Or at least that's that's been my experience with how I read things. So uh, to me, it is a question of like, where do you want the arrow to go? And how, how magic-y do you want characters to be able to be? Because the weird thing about Quintessence is it doesn't do dick with your accumulation of paradox. That's the real thing that slows you down. Uh, quintessence helps you be more successful. It doesn't help you deal with the major burn of paradox, which I wish were kind of a knob just because as listed paradox isn't too much of a risk. It just doesn't pop up that, that much with most major difficulties. But uh, that is another question. But uh, to me, though, I do like the idea of does Duizetep exist? Is there this great other place? And more importantly to me, if Duizetep exploded... What is happening with the War of the Ruins? The fact that Horizon and Duizetep are gone, that the City of Brass was destroyed at some point, that gives us Mage the Ascension dungeon crawls. 
and that is something we could use. Not all the time, it's a sometimes food, but I always like when you prove that your game can handle this standard trope in an interesting way. So to me, my question is how much magical crap is kind of scattered around out there? I like there being a few empty Nephondic labor uh, labyrinths. I like there being the ruins of Duizatep being something that is still picked over. Uh, that to me is that the vital part of that, uh, how powerful Chantries and Horizon Realms thing. I agree with all of that, especially the whole bit about Duizatep. I also, for me, with Metaplot, my question is always, does this Metaplot element matter at my table? And Doisatep, rising or falling, you know, being rebuilt, being a dungeon crawl, that might not impact all my tables, but you can easily have characters that had their identity wrapped up in, I'm part of the glorious traditions, and this was a symbol in my head, and now it's fallen. And then that's going to impact your table because that's a societal trauma that maybe your hermetic characters especially cling to and it impacts how zealous they are. If a player brings it to the table or if you have a story that directly relates to it, care about that meta plot. Otherwise, might as well not exist. I mean, that's the reality of play. But I think opening up stories like, you know, Mage the Dungeon Crawl, I think that's Anything that opens up possibilities in this game, I think, is a good thing. Yeah. And a lot of the meta plot points, I think, do that, which is always good. Yeah. And I guess if I have a closing thought, I think that the outcome and the options as presented in the actual outcome, to me, are a little bit disassociated. As I said, you can have the spirit nuke have gone off and there having been no week of nightmares. And suddenly you have mages that are dealing with what happens when a nuke goes up and a whole bunch of spirits are thrown through the shroud and suddenly we have shamblers everywhere and now mages kind of take over for hunters. So uh, these things are sometimes presented as a uh, a menu that go that move along together, but in 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 reality to me, a lot of these switches can be flipped independently sometimes they kind of move together to help create theme and mood but if you just don't like one you could change that and uh and you certainly have my permission to do that um do you have any any final thoughts before we uh close the door on future fates for now no i think we've pretty much gone down all the uh <laughs> the main roads that yeah. Fates open up for you <laughs> yeah this may be a loaded question. Rumor has it that walking, uh, you will finally finish walking away from Arcadia, that you will have finally left Arcadia at some point. Are there any other projects that you're working on or that we uh, may hear out of you if this goes out sometime within the next few months? Yeah, uh, walking away from Arcadia is wrapping up. We have finished recording. And then Simon and I were both struck hard by pandemic mm -hmm. motivation death. So about half of the last season released and it finished releasing around the end of 2020. It was a large unplanned gap and we're actually about to start releasing again in a few more days. So the first episode of the last part of the last season is going to be dropping July 1st. And then I think we have 11 episodes in the can, two of which still need to be cleaned up. So nine yes. of them are like done and ready. We're going to release them. You'll have Walking Away from Arcadia for several months. And hopefully we'll get those last two episodes of the actual play done by the time we're out of the discussion episodes. Those are hard to edit, by the way. Everyone who has enjoyed those episodes, they take like five times as long to edit. It's intense. Um, the, the International Fellowship of People Who Edit Podcasts is endorses this comment. Yeah, that's the big thing. Uh, I do have some Storyteller Vault projects that I'm trying really hard to pivot back to and finish up. One in particular, which is, and I'll go ahead and give the pitch for it, 
no idea on what a release date is, but the idea is basically cool. Dante were totally rewritten in C20 and are kind of nifty, but they're not the original concept of banal changelings and broken old changelings. And what does that really look like if the Dante are this thing over here? And can we make that make sense? So trying to untie that Dante not in a different way than they did in the canon material. That is probably the closest thing I have to release, but there's still so much editing just staring me in the face there. <laughs> we'll see how long it takes. <laughs> awesome. And if we can come up with a vague justification for how that interfaces with the mage world, I look forward to talking with you about it. Thank you so much, Victor. Thank you. This has been Made to the Podcast, and yes, I promise I'm going to remember to call my mom this weekend. We've recently switched to Patreon, and you can support the show at patreon.com slash made to the podcast and get a section of pre-conversation that Victor and I had before the show if you support us at the $3 and up level. Also, a preview of my 10,000-word update to Ascension's Landscape will be going up for everyone to see sometime in the next two weeks, so please join if you'd like to see that. This show is made possible by executive producers who are in no particular order. Ryan Kendi, Ian, Jason Sun Dennis Osborne, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klaymanov, Leslie Weatherstone, Gargala Noir, Guy Conan-Stewart, Berto, Ryan Hilton, Jason Vines, Ralph Scheinhammer, Alexander Gorton, Stefan Carton, Dan Svensson, Josh Heath, Anders Silverplatz, Jenna F., Josh H., Bryce Perry, William Martin, Michael Parker, Andy, Michael Creedle, Josh Golden, Isabel Castillo, William Connolly, Andrew Edelstein, Brendan Morrill, Christopher Zack, John Horton, John Magnuson, and Oracle Buck Farmer, who for this episode is Oracle of the musical instrument the Coman Paper, which is part of the singing membranophones family, sometimes known as the Merletons, which is another name for the eunuch flute, which is apparently a thing. These things normally wouldn't be so long, I just wanted to say eunuch flute because it sounds like an insult. And also special thanks to Christopher Phillips, who is the Oracle of surprisingly nice fake flowers, where, I mean, you probably just could have paid a little bit more and gotten real flowers, and then they would have smelled nice, but maybe you're doing it to kind of be passive-aggressive and show that you have money, but that you don't care about your person. Weird flex, but okay. Our executive producer shout-out for this episode is to Alexander Gorton. Alex, if I can call you that, doesn't know this yet, but in M5, they will be indirectly responsible for the addition of three new abilities on the character sheet. The first is Moxie, which will replace Resolve. The second, Parsimoniousness, which will replace Brawl, because if a mage can't parsimony their way out of combat, what's the point? And finally, Beekeeping. And I don't think I even need to go over why it's so obvious that that needs to be added to the character sheet. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We just passed about 500 members on our hopping Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. You can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choosing. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also, go to magethepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.